perhaps of different points of view, uh, to discuss uh, those issues. And so we're very, very pleased to have with us today uh, Congressman Kirk and Congressman Larson. Uh, they join us uh, because of their expertise on China. Uh, I think, if I'm correct, you co-chair the U.S.-China Working Group. Uh, together you have introduced any uh, number of pieces of legislation important to the ongoing uh, U.S.-China relationship. And perhaps most importantly um, for this discussion, you just returned uh, from a trip uh, to China, and so we're able to see some of the issues we've all been reading about uh, in the papers uh, firsthand and, and, and talk to Chinese officials um, about these issues. Uh, what we're going to do is we have a, a couple of discussion questions we're going to kick it off with, and then as we always do in these forums, uh, we will open it up to um, some audience uh, questions. Uh, we anticipate uh, this will be about an hour long for those of you who are watching uh, your um, schedules. Uh, so my first question, um, and this will probably come as no surprise, uh, uh, being the former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, I thought I'd ask about the environment. And um, I'd be interested in, in sort of what you saw and, and, and what you heard while you were there, and if you have any insight to what role China may play uh, in this new round of discussions and negotiations about climate change. And uh, Rick, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, well, thanks. I want to thank the uh, center. For American Progress for putting this on uh, this morning and inviting Mark and I. Just a quick commercial about the U.S.-China Working Group. Uh, Mark Kirk came to me uh, about two, two, and th two years, three months ago, and had this idea that uh, we should uh, start a working group or discussion group uh, regarding China to try to educate members of the House of Representatives about China because uh, they're, they're the only discussion that seemed to be taking place about China seem to be taking place on the floor of the House of Representatives, which frankly is the last place you want to start a discussion uh, on anything. Uh, and so, um, so we, we sort of bought low. Uh, if, if, China, if, if the issue of China was stock, we sort of bought low because we started this right around the time of the CNUC debate in the U.S. House of Representatives where uh, the, the U.S. House was taking a vote on whether or not to condemn CNUC's uh, um, offer uh, effort to purchase uh, Unical. And uh, so, the, so, the, so things were pretty low in terms of the U.S.-China debate. Uh, um, but over the last two and a half years or so, things I think have improved. But with regards to the environment, uh, I think you'll find that uh, through the strategic economic dialogue that uh, Secretary Paulson has started, uh, the Secretary of Treasury, um, although it's called the strategic, strategic economic dialogue, probably the one issue over all other issues that provide the best opportunity for uh, cooperation between the U.S. and China is, in fact, on the environment. Mm -hmm. um, it's obviously a, a, a certainly a, a special. Uh, the environment holds a special place for Secretary Paulson. His special interest for him. But it is also a place where U.S. technology can help solve a Chinese. Uh, Chinese problem. Uh, just a quick example, uh, quick, quick example of one thing that we saw not on this trip but a previous trip. We went out west uh, to Lanzhou, uh, and then into in, in Western Gansu Province, and, and visited the uh, western end of the Great Wall. And most people, if they go to China, see the Great Wall of China closer to Beijing. This is the western end. The palace there is well preserved. Uh, the wall there is well preserved, and everything is caked in coal dust. Um, uh, because of the, st the steel mill powered by coal in that, uh, in that western end of Gansu. And so 
just you know this this relationship between the environment and what China has to offer, uh, I think really uh, really showed up in, in stark mm -hmm. terms to me uh, on that particular trip. Do you do either? Do you see any uh, emergence of a sort of NGO movement, a grassroots environmental movement? I mean, given the fact that people are starting to really experience some of the health consequences associated with pollution, and, and the fact that I think it's the Foreign Affairs this month says that the Chinese government uh, estimates that they will because of climate change, uh, experience a 30% decrease in precipitation in their major agricultural areas. I think they need to. Uh, you know, China is obviously still a communist dictatorship. And the problem uh, uh, in how a society deals with environmental issues is radically different from the United States and China. In the United States, when we have a situation like I recently had in Chicago, of BP announcing a plan to, um, to uh, pollute Lake Michigan, the uh, uh, public outcry uh, was so heavy and so strong, uh, Republicans and Democrats in elected office moving against BP so quickly that the problem quickly resolved itself through the elected representatives of the American people to handle an environmental problem. In China, if the local party secretary does not handle the issue of a paper miller or, or factory polluting a downstream community, the community will rise up and go kill the, the plant manager. Wen Jiebao gets a, a, a briefing on, uh, on domestic disturbances every day. This is a critical issue facing uh, the National People's Congress. Is We talk about building a harmonious society, about the Go West uh, strategy, and how does the social contract hang together if you're not a democracy. Um, uh, environmental issues, I would say, are either the number two or number three issues uh, in China. And it, it directly impacts the social unrest or social compact uh, facing the Communist Party at a time when the Party Congress is just around the corner. Right. And so this is a this is a critical issue. Do you, in terms of um, the international discussions around climate change, do you see uh, any movement in terms of the position they'll take. And I, I think it's interesting to note the relationship that China has, uh, the increasing relationship with developing nations and whether that might inform their thinking as they... Uh, my, my personal assessment is that uh, if, uh, if China sees uh, making internal changes to help the global climate to its, as, in its benefit, then, uh, then the apparatus, the government apparatus, mm -hmm. will make those changes. Um, it's it's uh, it, it's not that uh, every country sort of is always benevolent and does things uh, for other countries instead of just itself. But uh, um, in the short time that, that Mark and I have been involved with the issues of China, I've, I've concluded, uh, at least to this point, that um, that although China wants to be a great power. Uh, they still have not sort of stepped up to what that means uh, in terms of collective responsibility, in terms of uh, seeing itself in the rest of the world and, and being a leader in the rest of the world. And so I think on, on the environment, uh, because the environmental issues are so tied to economic growth in China that, I, you know, unfortunately I think for the global climate, uh, China will always pick growth first instead of try to find some better balance un unless they see it in their best interest. And, so part of our challenge in the U.S. and the rest of the world, I think, is to try to help China see how it's in their best interest to make some of these changes. Mark, one of the things um, you uh, mentioned was um, 
what happens to a plant manager that's not doing their <laughs> job. I think uh, many of us uh, read with, uh, particularly former regulators, uh, with uh, some aghast uh, what happens to the FDA regulator when they're perceived not to do their job in China. And um, the, the issue of product safety, can you speak to that? And, and sort of what you, is something changing? Or, or you know, is, as consumers, should we feel some greater confidence uh, right now, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in the system. Uh, we have a, a number of recalls. Um, we met uh, during our re most recent mission with uh, Vice Minister Wei, uh, of the um, of the uh, he, who is the leading minister in charge of uh, product safety and quality measures for the exports of China. Um, they uh, opened the meeting by talking about how the uh, head of the FDA in China was executed. And we said that might not be the systemic uh, change that we're looking for. Uh, we explained that um, this was a very emotional and real issue in every village in America. And, and somewhat because of how it unveiled, uh, that because of contaminated wheat gluten being added to gravy and bits in high-end pet food, uh, that uh, by representing a danger to America's pets, you hit a very emotional center uh, for a 21st century American life, followed by dangerous toys. So we were you know, you know, grabbing the third rail and then the fourth rail at the same time as far as American mm -hmm. emotion. We had a tough message for the Chinese, which is uh, we hope that you increase your product safety, uh, but uh, we're not going to wait to act. Uh, the Chairman Dingell, that the House of Representatives, the Congress, is going to move with alacrity on uh, product safety legislation. As the Chairman Dingell told us, the hearings have already begun, but the bill is already written. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that bill will come to the floor uh, in its current form. It would have a huge amount of bipartisan support. And basic ideas behind that legislation deploy U.S. FDA and Consumer Product Safety Commission inspectors to China. Uh, to follow the model of the Port Security Initiative, where U.S. Customs and Chinese officials are working uh, side by side, to increase the fines uh, for importers into the United States from fifty thousand, or sorry, from five hundred thousand dollars to fifty million dollars, uh, and to to get a handle on this problem, the Chinese said that they are moving product safety legislation too as part of the National People's uh, Congress, but they won't uh, enact until um, uh, Christmas. And Rick's favorite uh, phrase in Chinese is, but the problem is, in many places in China, as they say, the mountains are very high and the emperor is far away. Mm -hmm. mm. While the law can be very good in Beijing, how it's implemented is, is oftentimes the key issue in China. Right, enforcement yeah. can be very difficult. And, and, if, and if I may on that, you know, we went on this most recent trip uh, to discuss mainly counter-narcotics and counter-terrorism and where the U.S. and China might cooperate. We ended up spending most of our time talking uh, uh, food and product uh, safety. And um, the second thing that Vice Minister Wei told us was that this was overblown. This issue of food and product safety was overblown. It was a lot, there's a lot of propaganda um, that it was only 1% of the problem. Uh, they wanted to fix the 1% of the problem, but, but still that they, were, they, they saw this as just one more issue that the U.S. was going to use to leverage China on some other issues. And, uh, and, our, and our message back was that that isn't the case. Uh, you know, our impression is not the case. That the, the food and product safety issue is a big problem, but it is its own problem. And if it gets bigger than its own problem, we will start leveraging it on, on other issues. And the, the, the second thing was that, um, you know, we said, I, I told them, I said, if, if I tried to explain um, 
uh, Renmin B revaluation to my mom, arbitrage trading, currency exchange rates to my mom. It'd be very difficult. I can barely explain it to myself, much less explain it to, to my mom. But if I started talking about um, the toys that her 13 grandchildren played with uh, and whether or not there was lead paint on them, my mom would explain what that meant to her right. and, and, and in very stark terms. The point is, we aren't making this up. This is a very real problem that needs to get solved. And if people go shopping this, this Christmas season, this holiday season, looking for toys not made in China, then uh, retailers are going to have a problem, China's going to have a problem, the toy maker's going to have a problem. It's going to be everybody's big problem. And, and so it's in everyone's interest to get this, get this solved. The, the legislation. One, one last thing, too, is that this is uh, a great concern of the Chinese middle class itself. Oh, because they're buying the same products. Because they're buying the same products. And these stories are, are also repeated in the Chinese media. Interesting. The, the, I want to go back to the legislation just for a moment. Uh, the penalties that are being um, discussed, they would be assessed against an importer of a product that didn't meet U.S. safety standards? Right. Wow. Yeah. And this is, and this is, very, uh, this is an mm, interesting, interesting aspect to it. We sit down with some of the U.S., some, I won't say all, but some of the U.S. business community in China. Mm -hmm. and. And, and their concerns are that if this problem, it, it, who have nothing to do with food safety and toys, right. uh, products, uh, product safety and uh, pet food safety, but uh, they see this as a problem for them because of the potential for, for tit for tat, right? That right. China's going to start finding other things that are problems. And, you know, so while we were over there, there's a concern about uh, Nebraska red soybean. Right. That comes from nowhere. The wood packaging, they, they, they uh, Chinese ma inspectors magically found a little bug in some, in some wood packaging while we were over there mm -hmm. uh, that was being used to package something that was being imported uh, into China. This tip for tat could explode into something uh, bigger. And mm -hmm. as a result, um, some of the U.S. business community, frankly, was telling us the, the um, uh, not the retail community in the U.S., but the importer community in the U.S. needs to have some of this uh, feel some of this pain as well, so they can take care of their supply chain. Right. The, um, let, let's stay on Congress for just a second. Um, you mentioned uh, one piece of legislation. Um, let's talk about the trade imbalance. That might be something your mother could understand, too. <laughs> she might understand arbitrage, but I think most Americans uh, understand that somehow or another there's a trade imbalance and it's not working in our favor. Um, what can Congress do? What should Congress do? I don't know if you're talking to the right guys about that. Um, you know. Uh, Tell some of my colleagues uh, who who believe that every job that they've lost in their district has been lost to China. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. I doubt that it's true. It's probably not, right? But uh, um, but if if we were to take actions uh, in this in the Senate or the House and made them into law, and some of the things that some people want to do, whether that's increased tariffs or or countervailing duties or so on. Uh, the potential for job loss in my district increases exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, as sympathetic as I am to my colleagues, I don't want to be in the position that they're in in terms of losing jobs in my district because of actions that we take. So I, I think on the, um, when it comes to the trade imbalance and relationships between currency and so on, uh, it, it, as difficult as it is, my personal view is that a, a job boning the Chinese and, and, and and letting that uh, currency revaluate um, slowly mm -hmm. is probably in our own 
best interest, mm -hmm. much less getting our own budget deficit under control as well. Um, you know, we own some of this problem ourselves. So it's not one thing that's going to resolve it. It's a couple things. But that, that's, that, that's, that helps my district the best. So any, any different point of view on the Republican side of the aisle? No, Maybe not I, you I mean, individually, but... Well, Rick and I, we're bipartisan kind of guys. We tend to be known for criticizing our own parties more than the, than the other party. But uh, um, I, I, Amity Slage, for example, has a great book about how um, aggressive congressional action on trade turned the recession of 1929 into the Depression. Uh, had we listened to the voices in Congress on uh, anti-trade voices against Japan, we would have made critical errors in that relationship and with a U.S. ally. And no one is calling for a trade war with Japan now. Uh, wh when we look to China, uh, we already see a, a vast migration of very low-cost production moving out of China uh, because their wage structure is rising so quickly to Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, uh, and other places. And so uh, I'm in a district that is heavily export-related. Uh, the, the American media will not publish this chart. But the chart that they, they refuse to uh, let out is raw number, uh, raw amount of U.S. exports over the last 10 years. They don't want you to see that chart, but that chart is a great explosion in the business that American exporters uh, are, are booking overseas. So we're sending our raw materials and we're getting them no, back as product? No, U.S. exports. You know, we're the number one exporter right. on the planet. Oh, and uh, our, globally. Right. This is why the New York Times will never publish mm -hmm. that report uh, or that graph because it tells a stark picture of the success of, of U.S. exports. And I feel it very directly. Many of my families earn their income at Motorola in Chicago. It's the best recognized trademark in China. I was very encouraged the other day when we were at, uh, at uh, the uh, Hu Jintao lunch uh, uh, over at the White House. And Hu Jintao being a, this last year, Hu Jintao being a type A personality, got a little bored during the, um, during the, uh, the uh, entertainment, and he did what we all did. He reached down and he pulled out his cell phone, which was a Motorola Razor. Uh, I'd like to see that the, uh, the head of state of China had an American cell phone in his hand. Um, as, as to America's largest exporter, Boeing, as to America's number one airline, uh, United, also based in Chicago. Uh, this, is, this is a message that Mayor Daley has mm -hmm. uh, carried very strongly to Illinois Democrats is, we will have unemployment in Illinois if you attack the export sector. And a trade war with China is attacking the export sector. So one, thing, hmm. one area uh, where Mark and I will disagree is that he'll attack the New York Times and I won't. Um, <laughs> the other... Well, let's switch to Taiwan <laughs> for a second. Uh, just, 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 just quickly, on, on, the, on the economy, one more, one more thing, is that, um, is that uh, President Hu Jintao's effort to, to shift from export-led economy to a consumer-led economy mm -hmm. is very positive for the U.S. And, and one, one area where we ought to uh, help focus our, um, uh, our efforts, perhaps through the strategic economic dialogue, is just finding ways to continue pushing that um, mm -hmm. effort in China to create a consumer-led uh, economy, because that, that's going to help our export position over time. Let me ask you a question about Taiwan. Um, Taiwan recently unveiled a plan to hold a referendum on whether to seek uh, United Nations membership under its own name. Were you guys in China when this happened? Just after we left. Just after. 
what's your take on it? What's Taiwan thinking? How does this all play out? Well, um, what we were struck by is uh, Rick and I uh, have now been through our 50th and 51st uh, Taiwan monologues. Uh, in, uh, in in uh, China, uh, so uh, he or I can either do the defense ministry or foreign ministry version of that uh, of, of that monologue. The only thing I would in say in the original in the language, yes, yeah. yeah, either in Cantonese or in Mandarin. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the uh, but what I was struck by was it is really strong at this point. I've never heard it this uh, this mm. strong. Interesting. And, um, and I think uh, it's, it reflects uh, the Chinese government uh, feeling a sense of political vulnerability. They have now committed over $40 billion to the Olympic Games. This is China's 21st century coming out party. Uh, and, uh, and they uh, are uniquely politically vulnerable to any potential crisis which could harm these games. And so the, um, the, uh, the tension is uh, quite high. And, and we picked that up strongly. Yeah, I, I would I would agree on that. The the intensity we've heard the, we've heard the speech a lot of many times. The intensity level this time was 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 higher than I'd ever heard it uh, in terms of how it was how it was be de being delivered to us from, from the from the Chinese. And and there's a there's a couple things going on. Obviously, uh, one is that uh, President Chen Shui Bin of Taiwan is done in March, uh, it's term limited, so he's done and he's somewhat of a legacy he wants to leave. Second, um, the party he represents uh, has been seen as more of an independence party than not, um, but for a variety of reasons has, sort of has, has not, uh, never fully acted on, on pursuing independence. And the, the referendum uh, that will, will presumably right. be on the ballot, it's not yet on the ballot, uh, in, in next March's election uh, on the island of Taiwan, presumably, would uh, would uh, direct uh, Taiwan to pursue uh, UN membership under the name Taiwan. Uh, now, I just read this morning there were uh, UN again once uh, once again rejected uh, Taiwan's membership, but they've always applied as Republic applied as Republic of Korea, but this would be uh, uh, of China, um, Republic of China, but this would be um, as Taiwan. And so uh, the Chinese see this as a, a step towards independence. And um, so you, you couple that, perhaps Chen Shui Bin looking for a legacy, um, a step towards independence, uh, the Olympics, and, and Taiwan being what China calls a core national interest. And uh, the temperature on this thing just uh, yeah. in increases, increases exponentially. Before we go to the audience for a few questions, um, you mentioned um, the Olympics. So can they clean the air in Beijing for the Olympics? I, I guarantee you for the two and a half weeks the Olympics is in Beijing, the air will be 100% clean. But, but Rick, they're going to have to start at least two weeks before, given four the way and a half weeks, air pollution works. So we're talking about like four weeks of not driving. I don't, it'll, I, I don't know how they're going to do it, but it'll be okay. clean. Right now, they are doing it. They're, they're, well, they had their days. Well, they're, they're shutting down factories and rebuilding them out and kicking people off the land uh, elsewhere and, 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 and piping the power in, into the city. I mean, 
Are you, you as know. optimistic? No, I, I, this, is not a, this is not a democracy. So this, this That's how will, you do it. This, is, right. this, this, yeah. this will be done. It's, uh, it's difficult to describe, for those who haven't seen, the size of this Olympic Games. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, we, when we think about uh, Salt Lake City or Los Angeles or Atlanta, we think about games that paid for themselves. These games in no way right. pay for themselves. Th th this is an enormous public expenditure. Um, I'm not sure China uh, China has definitely changed the Olympics and, and set the bar very high. I'm not sure China realizes how much the Olympics will change them. Mm. You know, that uh, an official party and related media of 100,000 people coming uh, uh, to, uh, to Beijing and not entirely controllable. Uh, and, uh, and so th this will require a, a greater level of patience and acceptance of diversity and opinion uh, as, the, uh, as the games go on. They say they're ready for it. They certainly, you know, this, this is uh, near the top of their national priorities. And so I, I do expect that the emissions in the Beijing metro area will be uniquely low. Well, for those of you who have never traveled to China, um, there are days when you wake up in your hotel in Beijing on the, what, 30-something floor, and you can't see the hotel across the street from you. Yeah. And you think about what your lungs are going to feel like when you go outside yeah. for a, I'll tell you, especially Mark, in the winter. Yeah. Mark wasn't kidding it, uh, when he said $40 billion, that's what they've spent um, on new infrastructure, the building, the, the new um, uh, venues themselves, and uh, 12 new venues. Uh, throughout Beijing um, and the surrounding area, uh, just for the Olympics. And um, but I, I think I think the games will probably go off pretty well. Uh, I think what I think China will be surprised, however, by the exposure. I don't think they know what's coming in terms of international media coming into into China, and what the international media will want to report. Right. And and the day they, the media can't report it is a day that the Olympics will go badly for China. Right. I, I, I agree. I mean, this is their, this is their global coming out. And the, the, the level of scrutiny they are going to find themselves under from the, this media pool is, is, is significant. And I think, you know, for, from my perspective, you know, for the world's good, I hope it goes well. I hope that this yeah. is, 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 on balance, a, a positive yeah. uh, story. But it is full of uh, potential pitfalls. Let me open it up um, to the audience uh, for some questions. Let me ask if we have any reporters. We're happy to take you first. And um, if you don't, oh, right here, if you don't mind identifying yourself, we'll get you a mic. Thank you. Um, Christina Bergmann, Deutsche Welle, German International Radio. Um, I have a question about Tibet. Uh, the Dalai Lama is coming to Germany at the weekend. He will meet uh, the German Chancellor, and China has protested um, against it. So um, have you talked about Tibet with uh, the people you met, and what's the U.S. Um, policy concerning Tibet? Well, the, uh, uh, we did have a meeting with Helia Fay, Assistant, uh, Assistant uh, Vice Foreign Minister, Assistant Foreign Minister uh, in Foreign Affairs. Yeah, America portfolio. yeah, in charge of the North North America portfolio, and uh, their Chinese were were uh, very clear to us that they uh, were upset. They see Tibet as a, uh, again a core national interest. Very upset that the U.S. Uh, Congress, uh, House, Senate were going to present a congressional gold medal to uh, the Dalai Lama um, uh, sometime next month, and uh, um, again very clear. They said it could impact U.S.-China relations. And uh, our, our response was, we'll send that message back. But, you know, uh, 
if the, if the U.S. Congress wants to present a congressional gold medal to the Dalai Lama, the U.S. Congress is going to present a congressional gold medal to the Dalai Lama. Uh, you know, Luxembourg couldn't stop us. You know, no, no country, no country could say anything that would, would stop Congress from doing that. Uh, so, I, yeah, I really didn't know what else. To, really, really didn't know what else to tell him. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah, it's democracy. That's the way it works in it. Yeah. Over here. Um, Peggy Chang with Voice of America China Branch. Um, Congressman, um, I, I was wondering if you could um, talk about, recently there are a lot of reports about um, Taiwan, uh, about that uh, UN bid and how um, uh, the um, United States um, relationship with Taiwan is deteriorating and how um, it's getting closer to um, China. I mean, at least in the Chinese media, there are speculations about how this uh, U.S.-Taiwan-China um, relations changing the dynamics from 10 years ago, for example. Um, what is your take on that? How, how uh, what do you see like the U.S. Um, government's uh, relationship with China, uh, China and Taiwan changing? like? like at, at present? I'd say the, uh, things have changed quite a bit in the last 10 years. One of the reasons why we formed the U.S.-China Working Group is China, mainland China, is just more important to the United States across the board. Uh, when we think of um, our relations uh, with uh, China in the mid-1970s, uh, the liaison office that uh, George Bush Sr. opened up processed 32 visas in a year, and, uh, and uh, this was the uh, this was the China card uh, where about our, our, our relationship and its uh, triangulation against the Soviets was the only dialogue worthwhile. Uh, at this point, the U.S. Uh, embassy in Beijing is uh, processing several million uh, visas and, and entry of U.S. tourists into China. When you look across the board of North Korea, uh, Iran, uh, uh, Darfur, uh, product safety, uh, uh, the uh, proliferation security initiative, uh, currency, uh, cell phone standards, aircraft sales, it, you know, the, the impact of China on the United States is vastly greater than it ever was. For us, we, we put forward bipartisan legislation, the Diplomatic Expansion Act, to dramatically increase the, just the footprint of the U.S. government in China because China is, is, is so large. We, we don't have a consulate in the city of Wuhan, which has over 9 million people uh, uh, in it. And, and so this has changed quite a bit. If, if I had looked at U.S.-China trade compared to U.S.-Taiwan trade 20 years ago, Taiwan clearly eclipsed China. Uh, now it's the other way around, and that does have a direct impact on the diplomacy and, and the dialogue between the two countries. I'll, and I'll say this as well, in, in addition to that, is that U.S. policy uh, regarding China and Taiwan hasn't changed. We haven't changed. We have a one-China policy. Uh, it's based on three communiques. It's based on the Taiwan Relations Act as well. We want stability in the strait. Any change in status quo is through diplom diplomacy and dialogue. The U.S. hasn't, we haven't changed our position on that. Over here. Good morning. Uh, Dan Newman, Inside U.S. Trade. Uh, Congressman, you talked about uh, Vice Minister Wei's reaction from AQSIQ to the part of the product safety issue talking about, and he, when he was in the U.S. last week, he said generally the same thing both to media and to Senator Durbin on, on the Senate side, uh, that uh, the issue was overblown. A lot of the problems were due to U.S. companies giving 
improper standards to Chinese manufacturers and the U.S. not verifying that Chinese exporters were in fact licensed to export. Are, are those comments and the comments that he made to you about the, the problem being overblown by us, I guess, uh, in the audience uh, with, the, with the notepads, uh, is that, is that, uh, sorry, is that, um, is that evidence that the Chinese are going to be unwilling to cooperate with potential legislation that might call for increased inspections of on-site manufacturers in China? You know, MOFCOM, the Ministry of Commerce, AQSIQ, uh, are generally willing to talk to anybody that wants to talk to them about these types of things, but when it comes down to FDA or the Consumer Product Safety Commission walking through doors in China, things can sometimes get a little stickier than, than that. And what is your impression of how the dialogue, how the rhetoric will match with actual activity on the ground in China? Thank the you. The question is there's the opening gambit and then there's the real position. The opening gambit is to try to see if we'll bite that it's overblown, et cetera. We, we squashed that in about two and a half seconds. This is <laughs> way not overblown. And, and you know, here it is, what, uh, September 21st, I think the uh, Christmas shopping season began a month ago. Uh, and so uh, for most, most mothers in America, uh, at Toys R Us, they will look down, and if it's made in China, it, you know, skip it, buy something else. Uh, and, and I think my read on it is uh, uh, Vice Minister Wei ha has reports to a number of senior level officials you know, one of the most capable, in fact, I think she's probably the, the most capable minister in China, she seems to work on all domestic problems as Madame Wu Yi. And the assignment of her uh, 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 efforts to this problem shows that, in, in my view, the Chinese government is taking this very seriously. Now, because uh, uh, of the Communist Party and the Party Congress coming up, etc., cetera, uh, they can't put forward product safety legislation and implementation measures in a week. Um, when, when they talked about uh, a new legislation by Christmas, that sounded like, uh, for them, a pretty fast pace. And then the only question for Rick and I is, is the Dingle legislation and the People's Congress legislation at all going to conflict? Or is this going to set up a virtuous cycle of product quality that will reestablish the relationship and, and, and the uh, and the supply chain? I, I just uh, note the the week you know, we were there uh, on Monday. We met with Vice Minister Wei, and he went through four points. He had this report, and there were four points that this report had determined were sort of defining the problem of of uh, food and product safety. Um, one, one thing he did say is that they do have a problem. That was the first, you know, it was one of the first things he said the report said. The second, second thing is said that there are uh, different countries have different standards for, for different products, uh, which is probably, you know, we go through that harmonization issue a lot with other countries too. There's probably some reality to that. Um, you know, I forget the third point had to do with, oh, it had to do with licensing. Uh, and, the, and the fourth was uh, the media, you know, over, overblowing this issue. We, again, we tried to make that point. Uh, to him that wasn't overblown. Later in the week at the ASEAN Plus Three Forum, the minister, uh, Bo Zhilai, uh, was, was speaking and he said that this is, in fact, this food and product safety problem is only 1% of the exports, only 1% of, uh, of everything that we do, but they want to solve 100% of that 1%. And that's a good message for the Chinese to right. deliver. Uh, and, and, I know, and I know Vice Minister Wei delivered that message last week as well. The thing is, what what we'd like to hear from the Chinese is just one message. Not, not we want to help, but it's, there's really not a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, nobody believes there's not a problem to solve. Can we talk just for a moment about um, access to information within China? And in, you know, in the years that I've been going there, eight plus years now, it, it, it feels like it's always about to change but then you're not quite <laughs> sure. And certainly they've become, people are much more technology savvy. I mean, you know, every 20-something year old walks around and is constantly, with a cell phone, constantly text messaging and gets some access to information. Well, what's your sense, I mean, in terms of their awareness of uh, news items in the United States and uh, their ability to access on any sort of regular basis? You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, Mark and I have, have written op-eds that have been in uh, China Daily, which is the English language yeah. party organ over there, and, and it didn't look any like anything like what we wrote. Um, you know, surprise, surprise. I don't, I don't think we and, had. And it. articles here always look exactly like what you said. They're closer here than they are over there, frankly. And and and, uh, and you know, and, and look, I I'm I'm enjoying uh, the work in the U.S.-China Working Group, enjoying developing these relationships because long term, this is. In my view, uh, Mark's view, this is the most important diplomatic relationship we have over the next century. But there are there are differences and there are problems. And, and one of the problems is access to information, where where people get their information. If all you're reading is China Daily, um, or 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 the or the Shanghai paper, which is just sort of a China Daily knockoff, really, it, it's you know you're not you're not getting as you're not getting world information. You're getting what did Hu Jintao do that day, or Wen Jiabo do that day, or, or Madame Wu Yi do that day? Um, you need more, more than that to develop uh, a, a democracy. And you know, obviously, they're not going to be a democracy anytime soon. Um, but it, it, I know it's really tough. And then there, you know, the, minister, the ministry is uh, state security and public security cracking down on, on, on the internet. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a problem for those people who are trying to access information. Ultimately, it's going to be a problem for the Chinese because gonna, the government, they're going to find out that at some point, they're not going to be able to track everybody. They may think they can, but they won't be able to track everybody and people are going to get information eventually. But one of the, the, on one of my most recent trips, I ended up being at a lot of college campuses and the thing I was the most struck by uh, and maybe it's partly a product of the one-child policy, is the number of 20-something-year-olds, it was a majority, easily more than a majority, who had traveled outside of China, <coughs> vacationed outside, so where they would have had access uh, to information. And you start to wonder how that impacts um, their desire for information going forward. I think it does. Uh, I think it's still true that you can learn more about China outside China mm -hmm. than in, um, especially about key things. Like, we all want to know who Hu Jintao's successor is. So at the Party Congress, on the last day, uh, uh, the new uh, 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 Central Committee will come out, uh, the Standing Committee, and, uh, and uh, it will be on national television, and that will be revealed to us. Well, when we have discussions about uh, uh, Li Keisheng or wh whoever, whoever the other provincial governors are in the maneuvering, it's very difficult to get a fairly honest assessment of who's where and what and the maneuvers. Whereas here in Washington, we can have these discussions and do endlessly, and they tend to be quite accurate here rather than there. So I, I think we've got uh, a ways to go. Well, there's a whole industry in, in Washington, D.C. on political ambition, um, obviously. And, and talking with uh, prospective Chinese leaders uh, to, you know, to a person, they just say, well, I'm just here doing my job. If, if I'm selected, well, you know, I, I'd be surprised if that ever happened. You know, it's, 
it's sort of there's all this humility, but you know, in the back of their minds, like, no, pick me. Human nature is human you know? nature. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. My guess, it's only a guess, is people are lobbying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They're working the system, whatever the system. No, and we do. and we have long discussions about the tactics, what's working, what's not, but we. We tried to have those discussions in Beijing and Shanghai. They're, they're very stilted and difficult. And so we have those discussions here. We're, we're, we're hosting one of those seminars uh, up on the hill uh, shortly. And un unfortunately, it's still true that I, I learned a little bit more about China here than there. Interesting. Yeah. Right in the front, right here. You need a mic. Uh, my name is Zhu Chen. I'm a student at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm now a reporter intern in National Journal. Uh, my question is, just now you mentioned you started U.S.-China working group uh, to educate the congressmen, but how about the senior congressmen that have already have a very strong and um, negative opinion about China? Do you debate at all, or do they buy it? That's what I'm interested in. I, I would just put in a commercial for us. We've had the most senior members part of our seminars. And so, uh, uh, you know, chairman of full committees or chairman of key appropriations subcommittees regularly take part uh, in what we've done, and it has made a, a big difference. Uh, the other day when uh, Secretary Paulson was in pre-briefing his mission to China, uh, we had Nita Lowy, who is the key foreign policy subcommittee chair of appropriations, and Sandra Levin, who is the key ways and means uh, uh, trade chairman. So it, it, I think our yeah. group has been pretty successful. Yeah, and, and, and we have uh, about, there's about 50 members uh, of the House who try to stay uh, fairly even Democrat, Republican. Um, we, don't have a, uh, we don't have a litmus test. Um, you don't have to sign uh, a paper to say you believe one thing or the other about China. We just don't bother that. I, I, will, I will say this, when we have our events, we try to invite mem members of the U.S.-China Working Group first and then other members as well. Um, but if, if you look at the membership, the actual folks who've, who have said we're going to be members of the U.S.-China Working Group, I think you could conclude that we are, in fact, building a foundation for the future relationship. And I would say, too, Rick and I, we've, we've talked about how we try to make sure that we're, our group is very representative of the three tribes of Congress. Not Republicans and Democrats, but on the China issue, are you a panda hugger? Are you a dragon slayer? Or are you a panda slayer? And we've got all three. The, the gentleman. Thank you. Good morning, Congressman. My name is Long Yue Zhao, adjunct professor at Jiangtai uh, University. I teach a course of the U.S. trade, uh, U.S. China trade policies. I have a question relative to the currently uh, last week, in fact, uh, Chinese government has submitted a request to the World Trade Organization, request the consultation of the trade remedy policies of the United States. Last, uh, last uh, March and May, the Commerce just, uh, just uh, published their preliminary determination to change the double countervailing duty and the out-dumping duty. i just uh, like to know, do you have any comment on this uh, request? And uh, if uh, any implications of the Chinese government this request will affect the Congress uh, bills or more China trade issues? Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that I think that uh, 
let me, give you, let me give you a general principle. That if you're going to be in the WTO, you better be ready to, to play by the rules of the WTO. And, and, and not uh, criticize, um, for the sake of criticizing cases brought against you be, within, the, within the context of the WTO. Uh, you, you, can't, you certainly can if you're leveraging for a position as you're trying to negotiate your way out of the problem that's being presented to the WTO. But the WTO is there for rules, uh, to, uh, to, to enforce rules. And the U.S. made a decision, uh, presumably in commerce, made a decision that, in fact, uh, that we believe it had a case to bring, uh, to bring on China on, on, on these certain, certain issues. And those ought to be adjudicated through the appropriate mechanisms. Um, I support that, and I, I hope it moves forward and gets adjudicated appropriately. I just say, it, no, that, that uh, follow the procedure. Uh, and, and this uh, rapidly turns into something that looks like a U.S. courtroom. Uh, plaintiff brings suit, defendant countersues. Uh, but the key principle should establish is that the court, or in this case the WTO, is the decider. Uh, I'm Kumar from Amnesty International. Uh, you touched on all the other important issues, but not human rights. I just want to know how they reacted in China while you were traveling there, and also what do you think the best way U.S. should move forward. I also want to comment, uh, uh, Congressman Mark Kirk, uh, you are a champion for human rights, so we have no worry about <laughs> this working group. Thank you. <laughs> Let me just say, uh, Probably the toughest uh, human rights uh, discussion Rick and I had, now I'm going to praise the New York Times, is on behalf <laughs> of their reporter, who was just released. And, and, uh, and we had an idealistic message, which is you shouldn't have arrested him, and what the hell. And then we had a, um, a, a practical uh, message, which is, you have any idea who you're messing with? Uh, and uh, and uh, to... to um, uh, uh, I'm glad he's out now. I hope this is not repeated again. And certainly with the Olympic venue coming, this is a unique level of openness China is going to have to show. You know, when you, when you get the games, it's going to change you. And, uh, and so uh, we'll see if that happens. There are other prisoners we should be worried about as well, um, uh, because this is not a democracy. And, uh, and just because we want trade and good relations on other issues, we shouldn't surrender our basic values. You know, the, the United States is a country that is not defined by geography and it's not defined uh, under a monarchy. We're, we're all tied to a 5,500-word document called the Constitution, which embodies key values, and we shouldn't surrender those values as we go overseas. Yeah, I'd just say, we, um, uh, uh, the meeting Mark is referring to is when we had last summer with the Minister of, of uh, Public Security. And uh, uh, it's interesting because he brought up the issue of Falun Gong and, and why in the U.S. we could even dare allow this, what, what he described as a cult, to operate freely. And you know, our response was, are you kidding me? The United States, we're built on cults. You know, we're just, you know, everybody. How did that translate? Well, every, everybody believes, you know, you can believe in anything here, practically. And, and besides that, uh, you know, if you just take Falun Gong separately, you know, my, my response to him was, you, you can't explain to me well enough why, how, how you think these folks um, are a cult. It, you just, you, you, 
you couldn't explain it in the U.S. And so we just don't understand at all um, how, they, how they can approach this issue from, you know, how and gone from, from, uh, from this column of cult. And then we brought up the issue of the New York Times research. I also, also note that while we were there, um, we delivered a, a, a letter on behalf of uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, um, uh, asking for the status and release of six individuals. And uh, those, um, uh, those, she'll bring up those individuals again uh, when some of the Chinese leadership uh, visits here in October. And these are uh, Chinese nationals? Chinese nationals, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of them was the New York Times researcher who has since been released, but there are five others, yeah. Yep. We have time for, I apologize, one more question, the gentleman this here. Gentleman, yeah. oh, this is an offbeat question. I'm from the National Institutes of Health, but we are into biomedical research. And one of our investigators, a very successful one, concluded his talk by saying, I couldn't have done this research without our Chinese molecular biologists, indicating that there's a lot of talent. My question is, what's the status of research in China, and how about any cultural exchanges, research exchanges between China and the U.S.? Um, I, I, uh, I don't have an answer to the first, um, first question, the status of research and so on, but one of the bills that, uh, we have a package of four bills that the U.S.-China Working Group has put out. One is to increase the diplomatic footprint Mark has alluded to. I have a bill on small and medium-sized business export promotion to the U.S. Steve Israel from New York has a bill on U.S.-China energy cooperation. And Susan Davis from California has a bill on, on exchange, educational exchange um, at, uh, uh, and, and education in the U.S. on Chinese language. And, uh, and that bill, uh, again, we're trying to close the exchange gap we talk about the trade deficit as an exchange deficit where you have 60 to 100,000 Chinese students, researchers, and so on coming to the U.S. We've got 3,500 U.S. students and researchers going to China uh, each year. And we are, we're, we're way behind in that regard. So the extent that we can, uh, the extent that we can uh, you know, certainly invite folks over here, but get our folks over there as well uh, in terms of an educational exchange is going to be critical to lay in this foundation over the, over, the next, over the next 50 to 60 years in this relationship. I would just say China is becoming a center of innovation. You know, wh when you're the, uh, have the large number of internet users or the large number of cell phone users, you are going to become a center of, uh, uh, of real innovation. One of the things Rick and I have backed as well is w we think there should be more uh, energy research and innovation between the two countries. Uh, we put forward an idea to, st to establish a secure energy loan facility at the World Bank, about $20 billion fund uh, to help uh, develop uh, China's uh, uh, access to energy separate from Iran uh, and, and also to, to accelerate uh, uh, energy efficiency um, uh, upgrades because uh, for, for a, a vehicle produced in China compared to a vehicle produced in, in the United States, the Chinese will emit five times the amount of carbon uh, to produce the same vehicle. Right. Uh, so we know that there's a lot of innovation that's potential and technology transfer that will, that will meet one of China's critical uh, domestic uh, problems, which is access to energy. Uh, they not only should develop better distribution and exploration in Central Asia, separate from Iran, but efficiency upgrades will also dramatically lower uh, their need for, for, for foreign uh, uh, resources and uh, we're sponsoring an effort to see if we could accelerate that dialogue and effort. 
You know, interestingly, um, the one of the the consequences of the Kyoto Protocol has been um, China's interest in the uh, carbon credits. And so you know, there's actually been some measurable amount of investment towards cleaner energy, capturing some of the carbon and the methane. And, and you know, I, I think to most people's surprise who were part of the negotiations going back 10 years ago, uh, right. this is a good turn of events. It was yeah. not something that was predicted, that China would be such a significant player. Uh, yeah. Before we, we, we end um, this morning, um, let me ask you guys a, a, a final question. Uh, I know that every time I go to, to China, and I don't go probably as often as you do, there's always something I learn that just sort of goes, wow, I didn't, you know, I couldn't have imagined that. I, I'm surprised. What was, what, did you have one of those experiences on this most recent trip, something you just couldn't have predicted, something that sort of changed the way you might think about it? I would just say for me, uh, we always thought of California as the cutting edge of lifestyle and changes, <laughs> that we would see things in California first and then it would then transfer to yeah, to the rest of the country. <laughs> I think now uh, uh, the, the center for some of these cultural changes has now shifted 10,000 miles west uh, for example, the oh wow for me was um, that uh, Shanghai now has internet addiction clinics because of kids, because <laughs> ki of kids who wake up and will spend 18 hours in uh, like Second Life uh, and then go to bed seven days a week. Now this hasn't quite fully hit the United States, uh, but the grip of the internet and literally spending every waking moment. Uh, uh, in front of a computer so screen. So playing these interactive games. Yeah, and, and, the, and, the, and the one that's got the most attention is Second Life, where, where a number of Chinese kids will, um, for hire, uh, uh, will be the Second Life of an American who actually has a life and, and is working. And they will run your Second Life, and then, but, but these people are literally in front of the TV screen, uh, or the computer screen, for 18 hours, seven days a week. This is something we haven't quite seen in the United States, but China is innovating, and a number of new lifestyles are being built in China, and we're beginning to see whole new 21st century opportunities and problems emerge. You don't think um, we have people who spend 18 hours a day on their Blackberries yet? Yes, right, that's right. <laughs> Only in Congress. Right, right. They're, they're called congressmen. Um, the, uh, um, some 24 hours. Uh, I guess the, the wow moment, aha moment, uh, for me, was uh, going out to Kashgar, mm -hmm. um, far western, far far western China, uh, as far west as you can get, uh, almost. But it's all and in the same time zone, right? It's all in the same time zone, uh, and so there's, you know, it's Kashgar time. Like there's island time in my <laughs> district. <laughs> people live on islands. It's Kashgar time. Things start about 10 and 11 in the morning. Uh, but you know, we always look at Hong, uh, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, Beijing. It's a place place to go. And part of the U.S.-China working group is that we want to take members where people don't normally go uh, to see other parts of China. Well, we went, went out to Kashgar and uh, where it's, uh, you know, whatever, 7 to 10% Han Chinese by ethnicity and 90% plus uh, uh, Uyghur, Central Asian. And uh, uh, it, was, it was, you know, we have pictures of it and it was not like being in, it was not what I expected of China at all. It's it, very different. Very different. So very different. Well, let me um, thank you on behalf of the Center for American Progress. Thank all of you here for uh, joining us this morning, and thank you for your time and, and your observations. And I think, most importantly, just thank you for your thoughtful leadership. Uh, you know, you, I think both of you have uh, recognized uh, that this is one of, the, if not the most important global relationship for the United States going forward, and, and the kind of 
the approach you're bringing to it and, and the thinking you're bringing to it and the leadership, we, we appreciate that and we thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks,